We're going to continue in our study through the book of John this morning. John chapter 20 uh, is where we left off uh, last time we were together. Um, we're going to be starting with verse 19 uh, this morning. So chapter 20. I don't know how many of you uh, have had to deal with it in the past, but when you have maybe what we would call an unexpected visitor at your house. Uh, now, when Chris and I, uh, growing up in Illinois, when we were married in Illinois, and uh, our first home was in our hometown, and um, it wasn't usual throughout the course of the day. We were on a main street there that you just hear somebody honk, and it was either a friend or a relative. They know you live there, and you know, on by they would go. It was a regular occurrence. And then there would be people that would just drop in unexpectedly. You know, you knock on the door. Hey, we just thought we'd stop by and see what you're doing. You know, sometimes it was a blessing. Other times, not so much. <laughs> uh, I used to, when I was younger, I loved the element of surprise. So well, a couple things. When I went away to college, uh, there was uh, one time when, when uh, Chris and I were dating, we started dating when I was a senior in high school and Chris was a freshman. And so um, I had all through my high school years uh, all the homecoming and prom things and then, of course, got four more after that because of Chris being, you know, in, in high school at the time. And so I was away at college and I was going to be coming back for homecoming, but I thought it would be really cool, you know, to, to get away early. She wasn't expecting me till like Saturday morning, and I thought, I was in, at school in Southern Illinois, and I thought, oh, wow, this would be great to sneak back, you know, and then just surprise her, hey, you know, I'm home, oh, you know, all that kind of goofy stuff. So, you know, that was great. Uh, it was a good surprise. Later on, after Chris and I were married, we even did that. Uh, our oldest daughter, Lacey, was pretty small, and no one was expecting us to come home. We were living in North Carolina at the time, and we just kind of showed up at my parents' house, and of course, you know, their their first grandchild, you know, they were just elated, you know, to, to, to see that happen. Uh, they thought that was just wonderful. But the one that really sticks out in my mind the most, when I was going to college in Southern Illinois, uh, I thought I'd just sneak home one weekend and not tell anybody. Now, my parents at the time, I re had remembered from some phone conversation that maybe they were looking to move to another house or something, you know, just kind of, it didn't come to me to like, after the fact, obviously, but I leave from Southern Illinois, drive up north, get to the farm like late at night. It was like 10 o'clock at night, and the door's locked, and I'm, I'm there's no curtains in the window, there's no blinds. The house is empty. And I'm thinking, great. <laughs> they moved, and I had no idea where they <laughs> moved to. So I'm, I'm there, it's late at night, of course, it's not like I could just whip out my cell phone and call them, you know. That wasn't even an option at that time. Uh, so I had to drive back to town. I remember getting on a pay phone. You know, I'm in college, okay, so I'm looking through seats and the floorboard, everything else, trying to find just like a quarter, you know, so I could make a phone call. Uh, and I was going to call my, my grandmother because I figured she would know where they moved to, so I called them. But it was the weirdest thing to come home and find your family has moved. I, w I was an unexpected visitor. Nobody cared because there was nobody there, right? We're going to see in our text today, 
the disciples are in a place and they have an unexpected visitor. It wasn't someone they were expecting to see. It was Jesus because he had risen from the dead. They had heard rumors. They would heard people tell stories that they had seen Jesus, but they had not seen him themselves. So as we saw last week, uh, Mary was at the tomb and she sees Jesus. She doesn't recognize him at first. We talked about that. Then she does recognize him when he calls her by name. As she is clinging to him, Jesus tells her to, to go and tell his disciples what she has seen and heard. So at this point, as we have seen in our text, we have John believing. When him and Peter went to the tomb, we see that the, the text tells us that John believed. And now we have Mary believing when she sees Jesus. She talks with him, even clings to him at the tomb. And in our text this morning, we'll see Jesus reveal himself to an unknown number of other disciples. And then Thomas, we'll, we'll see, gets a, a special visit from Jesus. We'll look at that next week. Uh, so we're going to start with verse 19, our text this morning. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. Mary has already come to the disciples sometime during that day. Because we know it's evening now, right? Mary had been with Jesus at the tomb. She was clinging to him, spending time with him. And he says, go uh, to the disciples and, and give them the message that I am giving to you. And so we can assume that since it's evening, this has already happened. That Mary has come to them sometime during the day. Luke chapter 24, verse 33 tells us, So they rose up that very hour and returned to Jerusalem and found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together. So we know this story from Luke. It was the two disciples that were walking on the road to Emmaus and Jesus appeared to them. And they didn't know at the time they were talking to Jesus either. Uh, but Jesus leaves them, and the text says they rose up that very hour and returned uh, to uh, Jerusalem. So some of you might be thinking, it's just kind of an odd scene for them to be in the place that they were. Jesus just appears to them. He walks with them on the road for a while. As they're walking down the road, you know, uh, clad in whatever the style was of the day, whatever it was that they were wearing, you know, their robes, their sandals, may have been Birkenstocks that they were wearing, we don't know, you know, could have been. Being from Emmaus, maybe that was somewhat like Boulder, so they were wearing their Birkenstocks, or maybe even Winkle Pickers, that's another type of, you know, sandal that they could be wearing. You just don't know. It, it could happen. Anyway, by Luke's account, it was the 11 disciples plus those that were with them gathered together. We know that from Luke's text. As we can see from John's account, we know that Thomas was not there when Jesus came. As we read on, we'll see that. So evidently Thomas, because Luke says it was the 11 disciples, right? And others gathered together. That 11 would include Thomas. But evidently from the time that maybe Mary came or these two gentlemen came 
from Emmaus when they came back to Jerusalem to give their report. Somewhere during that time, in the time that Jesus actually appeared to them, Thomas left. We don't know why. We don't know what time. doesn't really matter. We just know that he wasn't there. But now it's evening on the first day of the week, which is the same day of the resurrection. John's text here is very clear about that, isn't it? He gives us this information about the time and the location that this took place. The first day of the week, we see in our text, at evening, where the disciples were assembled. So we have the day, we have a time frame, and we have the place, kind of, because he doesn't say exactly where that place is. He doesn't say exactly what time it was either, does he? He just says evening. And we've talked about this before. Uh, when we're interpreting Scripture using speculation, it's okay to do that as long as you say that's what it is. This is just speculation. Could have been this way, might not have been this way, maybe we don't know for sure. It's okay as long as you clarify that, that it is just speculation on our part as we look at it. So in this case, we have no idea of the exact time or the exact place, just what day it was. And we do know this. Jesus didn't have any problem finding them, did he? <laughs> He's Jesus. They were in this place. They're going through a tough time. The doors are shut. And we know that Jesus met them there. That is really good application for us this morning. When we find ourselves going through a tough time, not knowing exactly where to turn, we too should go to a place with the door shut, maybe not literally, but a place where we're free from distraction in that we can seek the Lord, we can seek Jesus, and He's not going to have any problem finding us there either, is He? He's going to know where we are. He, he always knows where we are. He always knows what we're going through. He already knows the answer to whatever it is that we're going through. And He comes to us, and we hear from him in a still, small voice, peace be with you. Peace. Peace be with you. And we also see in this text that they had shut the door for fear of the Jews. I, I can kind of understand that. I don't know if you guys can or not, but with everything that they had been through over the past few days, seeing in what had happened to Jesus, I think they wanted to lay low, didn't they? They didn't want to be out in public and be seen for fear of what might happen to them as well. Remember that just a few days before, we had seen in our text regarding this time, just a few days before this, it says that the disciples were what? They were scattered <laughs> all over the place. We don't, we don't know where they were for sure. But now we know from this text this morning, they are all together in one place. And think about the emotions that would be going on during this time. Sometimes we don't think about that, do we? We just, maybe they're sitting around playing pinochle, I don't know, uh, <laughs> some Jewish board game or whatever. We, we have no idea what they were doing, but they were all gathered together in this place, and they were all going through a different set of emotions, I think. Think about Peter. Peter had denied the Lord. Peter's probably got some depression that he's dealing with, doesn't he? As the 11 were there, as Thomas was one of them, maybe Thomas, as we, we've seen through Scripture, is known as the doubter. 
doubting everything that's going on. These claims that are coming in from Mary, the two guys from Emmaus, doubting their story. What about John? We know that John, he went in the tomb and he believed it said. So was John just kind of sitting back waiting? Oh, this is going to be good. This is going to be good because Jesus is going to show up eventually, you know. And it's going to be so cool when that happens. Man, you guys don't have any idea. Maybe that's John. Maybe some of the others were just angry at what had happened. Angry at what, what they're going through and what had taken place. There's sorrow. There's confusion. There's hopelessness. Jesus was, as they knew him to be, the Messiah, right? And now he's gone. How's God going to fix this one? Just think about every realm of emotion that you could come up with if you're in that situation and you got these guys there and then the others that were gathered there. Those are probably the things that were being talked about. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes to them with a word. Peace. In the Hebrew, shalom. Peace be with you. When the Prince of Peace comes and proclaims peace, His peace has the power to overcome whatever you're going through, doesn't it? When the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ Himself, says peace, He means it. Not only does He mean it, He can take care of it as well. He can grant that peace. Verse 20, when He had said this, He showed them His hands and His side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So imagine this scene. Jesus appears to them. They know it's him. They recognize him. But even for further confirmation, he shows them his nail-scarred hand and his pierced side. It's, it's pretty much infallible proof that it's Jesus, isn't it? For them and for us, it's a visual reminder for all of eternity. Because we know Jesus at this point is in his resurrected state, right? That's the state that he's going to be in when he goes to the Father. So when Jesus gets to heaven, this part of it's not speculation. (laughs) He's still going to have those scars in his hands, isn't he? In his feet. The pierced side. So as we get to heaven, we all know that we get new bodies, new resurrected bodies, right? And they will be without spot or blemish going to be perfect bodies now i know a lot of you got up this morning you looked in the mirror we're getting ready and probably your first thought was oh perfect perfect body (laughs) perfect face perfect physical stature i thought yeah i like being bald i don't want a bunch of hair messing this all up You know? Yeah, that was my first thought, right? (laughs) No, mine was, I long for the days when I could actually use a comb. (laughs) There's no purpose now, right? There's no purpose for a brush. Just a lint roller does all that I need, right? (laughs) But perfect bodies, the only body that's going to show scars of any kind is going to be the body of Jesus. So throughout all eternity, we'll be able to look upon his hands, his feet, his side, recognizing and knowing always what he did for us. Isaiah 53, 5 says, He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. 
The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. We know from our study through John that the crucifixion, the resurrection, all of this had to take place. It was the plan of God. It was the promise of God. It was the purpose of God for us. But there's also, as we see in our text this morning, there's also the peace of God. Peace that only comes from Him. Perfect peace. Peace that goes beyond our understanding. Hold your place in John and turn with me, if you will, to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4. We're going to read verses 4 through 7. Starting in verse 4, it says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. So right from the very start, you look at this verse and you're just thinking, seriously? (laughs) Everything that we have to go through in life and we're just supposed to rejoice in the Lord always? Uh, Yeah, that's what it says. Let your gentleness be known to all men. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. A lot of stuff in there. Without a doubt, we could take those uh, four verses and we could spend several weeks on just all that's covered in those four words. We're not going to do that. We're going to continue through our study of the book of John. But if you remember a few weeks ago, Glenn had, was teaching on Wednesday nights through Philippians, and he talked about this at length. But a few things just for us to look at and point out. In these verses, one of the things that it says is that we don't need to be anxious. How many of you may have come in here even this morning anxious about something? It happens, doesn't it? We get distracted and we get overwhelmed by what's to happen that day or the next day. It's on our mind. It's on our hearts. We don't have peace. It says we don't need to fret. We don't need to worry. We don't need to have anxiety. But what we need to do is go to him in prayer and supplications and let our requests be made known to him. And it's interesting when you look at that verse because... We're basically coming before the Lord, making our requests known to Him, of which, what? He already knows, right? So basically, we're coming before the Lord and saying, Lord, I'm in agreement with you and you with me that this is on my heart and it's on my mind. And you already know that, Lord. And you already know what the answer is to that. You know how to help me through that. So why does it take us so long to go to the Lord when we're going through something? You don't have to answer that. I mean, because I deal with it as well. Sometimes it seems like it's the last resort, doesn't it? Well, I guess I'll just pray about it. (laughs) I guess I'll just take it to the Lord since he knows everything and he created everything and he's in charge of everything. I guess I'll just go to him. Maybe, Maybe he has the answer. It sounds ridiculous, me even saying that, doesn't it? But that's what we do, don't we? So we're supposed to let our requests be known to Him. So when we feel anxiety coming on, when we're gripping about something, 
where's the first place we should go? To the Lord, right? This is like right then, wait a minute, I feel it coming on. I'm going to take it to the Lord and see what the Lord has to say about it. That's where we should be. That's what we should be doing. In Him we find peace, the peace of God. Perfect peace. We can make that statement, can't we? Because God's perfect. So if God brings peace, then what is it? It's perfect peace. It goes beyond our understanding, the Scripture says. It passes our understanding. God's ways are not our ways, so God understands in a way that we don't understand, doesn't He? So we go to Him, and He says, do this, do that. I'm going to give you peace about it. We don't understand it, but we should move in it anyway, right? Because it's His perfect peace. We don't have to understand it. How many of you have gone through something in the past, and you're in the middle of it? You're leading up to it. You're in the middle of it. You're past it. And then it's sometime later before you even understand it. Oh, that's why that happened. Now I get it. You know, and it's like a dumb moment for God, isn't it? <laughs> but He loves us so much, it's never a dumb moment for God. His timing is perfect. That's when He wanted us to understand it. When we would learn from it the most, right? So perfect peace. It passes, it goes beyond our understanding. And it also says in the text, it guards our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. Jesus is there to guard our hearts and minds. What, what does that mean? The enemy knows our weaknesses. The enemy knows what we've been through. He's been involved in some of what we've been through. So as God takes us past that and gives us that peace, we have peace at that moment. But Christ Jesus also guards our hearts and minds so that we'll have peace about it ongoing, right? He's guarding us from the enemy. He's guarding us from our own bad self, our flesh, right? From us bringing it up again in our minds. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Why, why am I going there? God gave me a peace about that very thing. He's guarding our hearts and guarding our minds from it. So when we have doubts, when problems arise, we can go to Him and find peace. Peace that continues to guard our heart and mind. Verse 21, so Jesus said to them again, peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. We know from study of scripture that if the Lord says something once, huge importance. If he says it twice, <laughs> double the importance, three times. Whatever the case is, if the Lord's going to repeat it, it's obviously needed to be repeated. We need to hear it again. So he tells them, peace to you twice here. Because they needed peace, didn't they? Shalom, again, he says it again and again. If you don't get anything else this morning, remember this. When Jesus brings peace into your life initially, he also brings peace into your life continually. When he brings peace into your life initially, he also brings peace into your life continually. Now, what does that mean? Well, the biblical concept of peace doesn't focus on the absence of trouble. Biblical peace is unrelated to circumstances. Rather, it's a comfort in our life that's, that's not even touched by what happens on the outside. It's an internal thing, isn't it? We could be in the midst of great trials and still have what we would call biblical peace, 
about the situation. Think of it this way. When we accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, we're no longer, as Scripture says, at enmity with God, right? We're with God at that point. We have accepted His perfect sacrifice for our sins. We have accepted God's perfect provision for our sins. So we now have peace in God. We're no longer at enmity with God. We have peace in God. Now because of the peace that we have in God, we can now find the peace of God in our lives. Because we have faith in Him, because we trust in Him, because we rely on Him and His Word, He not only brings to us everlasting peace because of our relationship with Him, but He also brings to us everyday peace. Not just everlasting peace. That's hard for us to comprehend sometimes, isn't it? What does everlasting mean? To infinity and beyond, right? What does that mean to us? How do we define it? That's hard, isn't it? It's like forever. And then the word forever doesn't even seem to capture it, does it? Like forever. <laughs> everlasting. But he also wants to bring to us everyday peace. Every day, every day of our lives. Peace in our salvation and peace in our sanctification. That work of salvation has been done in our lives and then we have this continual work of sanctification where he wants to grow us in our walk with him and give us that peace in our everyday lives, in our walk with him. Philippians 1.6, you all know it. He, he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. At the point of our salvation, he started the work, didn't he? Now, he already had the work in mind before salvation. He had it all planned out. But at the time of our salvation, from that point on, it's the sanctification process, right? He's going to complete that work. At some point in time, the work is done in us. God's work is completed. Wow, that should excite us, right? God, you got a lot of work to do. There's a lot going on here, and you're going to work it all out, and I'm going to be complete in you. It's not going to happen until we get to heaven, right? So you would think we would be in a place where, Lord, bring it on. I'm ready to go, and I hope we all are. I mean, what an exclamation point on any sermon is if the, the pastor was just taken, you know, before he even finished. I'm just not here anymore. I'm gone. It'd be kind of like this, wouldn't it? You know, somebody would <clears throat> clear their throat. <laughs> Crickets chirping. How did he do that? Think about that. Being in the presence of the Lord, being perfect, knowing that the work's complete. It's not going to happen for some amount of time. But he began, he initiated the good work in us at the time of our salvation. He's going to continue the work. He'll complete the work through sanctification in our lives. His ongoing work in our lives, we're a work in progress. He gives us peace in our salvation. He gives us peace in our sanctification. Remember, he told his disciples in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He's going to give you peace. He doesn't want your heart to be troubled. He doesn't want your heart to be afraid. Now, he has said this to them 
a little over three days before this time when they're together, before where they are right now. Where are they right now? They're gathered together with doors locked in fear, not in peace, right? They're not at peace at this point. But he had told them, my peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. But they're not at peace. And then Jesus appears, the Prince of Peace, bringing peace to them. They have been and are currently in a storm. They're in a storm. And we already know from our study through John how Jesus can calm a storm, right? Any storm. He says, peace to you. And not only do I grant to you peace, I give to you now a helper for your peace. You see, before he told them in John 14, 27, peace I leave, leave with you, peace I give to you, in verse 26, he gives them a promise, the promise of a helper. John 14, 26, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all things that I said to you. He gives to us the Holy Spirit, the helper of our peace in him our everyday helper of peace. We talked about eternal peace that we have in salvation, but that everyday peace, how do we get it? He gives us a helper to help accomplish that in our lives. It's actually part two of the threefold relationship that, with the Holy Spirit that we've studied before. This threefold relationship, the Holy Spirit with us, the Holy Spirit in us, and the Holy Spirit upon us. We're going to look at those first two just a little bit this morning. The third one, upon us, when we move out of the book of John into the book of Acts, we're going to see in that first chapter where that takes place. Well, first, let's define the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not a force or an energy. It's not like Luke Skywalker in his little rocket jet plane thingy. I don't know what the proper Star Wars freaks will probably really rake me over the cold. I don't know what it's called. Do you know what I'm talking about? Luke used the force. You know, it's not like that. I remember when I first saw that movie, that was kind of fascinating. All the force. Maybe that's kind of like the Holy Spirit. No, it's not at all. So just take that out of your mind, okay? <laughs> now that I've painted that picture for you, just forget that, okay? It's not like that at all. The Holy Spirit is a person. It's the third person of God's Holy Trinity. We know God the Father God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, three in one. God is the Father, the Son, and the Spirit all in one. Now, we've talked about this before. It's a hard concept to grasp. And every explanation I've ever heard, probably you've ever heard, falls so short of trying to explain that, right? The egg, the water, the, all these different things, cherry pie even. You've heard everything imaginable on how you've never heard the cherry pie one? Well, it doesn't have to be a cherry pie. I prefer apple myself, but any pie, you cut three pieces out, set them on the table, it's still all apple pie, isn't it? But there's three different pieces. Now, did that help at all? No. <laughs> well, see, God's like apple pie. <laughs> no, it just doesn't work. Does it? Or God's like an egg. <laughs> it doesn't work. It falls way short. We have to take it by what? By faith. And by what we see in God's Word, and it's pointed out for us very clearly in God's Word, the Holy Spirit's a person. He's invisible, but He is real. 
He's gentle, he's holy, he's all-powerful because he is God. The Holy Spirit speaks to us, counsels us, guides us. He's a helper, helper. he's a counselor, a comforter. And the Holy Spirit empowers us for service. So the Holy Spirit, by definition, is all these things, and he was to be all these things, is to be all these things in our lives. The helper available to us, not just to help us in our walk with the Lord, but also to empower us in our walk with the Lord. The same was true in the life of the disciples. Up until this point, they had not yet received his Holy Spirit in them. They had experienced, whether they knew it or not, the Holy Spirit with them, but not in them at this point. Turn over to John chapter 14, just a few pages back from John 20. Now, we've talked about this before when we have gone through the book of John and we talked about the Holy Spirit uh, at length or in depth when we were in John chapter 14. But let's look at verses 15 and 17. Jesus says, If you love me, keep my commandments. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper, that he may abide with you forever. The Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. This Holy Spirit, this helper, this, this promise that Jesus gives to his disciples, he says, dwells with you and will be in you. So in verse 16, we have the promise of the helper. In verse 17, we have the statement of a current state, a statement of the present. He dwells with you, is what he's saying, currently, presently. The Greek word for with you, that phrase, is para, P-A-R-A, -A, para, with or walking alongside. With you. With you. For what purpose? To woo you, to draw you, to make you aware of Christ himself. With you. Now, think about the disciples for a moment. Up until this point, they didn't have his Holy Spirit. Well, what was going on? Well, they had Jesus, didn't they? <laughs> Jesus was walking with them. And if the Holy Trinity is what? Father, Son, and Spirit, and Jesus is God himself, and Jesus is walking with them. The Spirit's walking with them, right? Christ himself was this in the life of the disciples. He was there, so the helper wasn't necessary at that time, because Jesus was there, right? Now, we know through Scripture, Old Testament and otherwise, there were times where God poured out his Spirit upon a person, and they did miraculous things. He used them for whatever purpose he wanted, and then, you know, it was back off again. We're going to see something different happen here, aren't we? For us, think of all the times in your life before you came to Christ that there was something tugging at your heart, something that was wooing you or drawing you, pointing you to Christ. Those times in your life where something was said, something was heard, something was seen by you in that you're just like, oh, wow, I should think about this Jesus thing. You know what? Something's going on there. 
Maybe it hadn't come to full fruition in your life yet. You weren't quite ready to turn your life over to the Lord, but there was something that was drawing you to him. So ultimately, we know that if you came to Christ, it was the Holy Spirit drawing you to Christ, wasn't it? That was his work because he was walking with you saying, check Jesus out. A little bit of doctrine for you to think about this morning is that we know that there is only one unpardonable sin, right? There's only one. By Scripture, it tells us that. And it is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. What would that be? Well, <laughs> without Christ, we know we can't be forgiven, right? So the one unforgivable sin would have to be rejection of Christ, which would be rejection of the Holy Spirit trying to woo you to Christ. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It just kind of makes sense, doesn't it? So if we continue to ignore the Holy Spirit throughout the course of our life and we die in that state, we're not saved. Now, hopefully every one of us today have responded to that at one point in our lives when the Holy Spirit was wooing us to the Lord. The Holy Spirit comes alongside of us to say, hey, Jesus loves you. He died for you because of his love for you. Respond to that love. Respond to it. Accept that love. That's the para, the with of the Holy Spirit. So it says in verse 17 that he, the Holy Spirit, the helper, is with you presently. But it also says he, what? He will be in you. Future. It's, at some point in time, this is going to happen. He will be in you. The Greek word for in is actually in. <laughs> we spell it I-N. The Greek, it's E-N. In. He will be in you, which means in you, <laughs> abiding in, residing in, taking up residence in. The very moment that you repent of your sins and ask Jesus to forgive you and to come into your life is the moment that you enter into this second relationship with the person of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit comes inside of you to live in you, to dwell in your, your body becomes his dwelling place kind of a freaky thing even to even think about that his holy spirit living in me but as we are saved we know it to be true because there's times when we hear that still small voice saying don't go there don't touch that don't you know like we used to tell our kids don't touch that it's hot you'll get burned it's the same thing that holy spirit doing that work in our life. don't touch that you're going to get burned you know don't go there still small voice we're either obedient to that or not. When we're not, we know from Scripture that that grieves the Holy Spirit. It's what He wants us to do, and we're not doing it. So He's grieved by that. So He's in us. Our body is His dwelling place. Our body is now the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's kind of a neat phrase, isn't it? Yeah, my body is a temple. Just let it go right there. <laughs> in you, E-N, Romans 8, 9 says, You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. If you or if I, if we're his, which we are, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior and Lord, you are his. His Holy Spirit, the Helper, is in you in me. 
He dwells, He lives, He resides in you. And that is, by Romans 8 9, proof of our salvation. It says, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ dwelling in them, they are not His. They are, they are not saved. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. It says, In Him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. Now, I'm not going to get into a, a whole discussion this morning about the argument through some circles of one saved, always saved. But, what do those two verses tell us if we have His Holy Spirit? It's a guarantee, isn't it? Now, do you see anywhere in Scripture where God goes back on His guarantees? God doesn't do that, does He? If we are truly His. And the proof positive of that is what? His Holy Spirit living in us. It's our guarantee. We are sealed in Him. Sealed in Jesus. We are His. We belong to Him. So the Holy Spirit in us is our proof positive that we are His. Proof that we belong to Him. So His Holy Spirit in us then is to change us, to conform us into the image of Christ, to change us from the inside out. We sing that one worship song, from the inside out. Why? Because we are being changed from the inside out. That's what is happening to the disciples in this text this morning. They're going to receive something, something that they haven't had before in them. They've had it with them, it just hasn't been in them. He will now be in them by His Holy Spirit. They are for the first time receiving His Holy Spirit. Now think about this. You ready? It's at this point then that the disciples are saved. Think about that. That just seems ridiculous, doesn't it? Well, they've been walking with Him for three years. But until Jesus died on the cross and was resurrected, the work wasn't complete, right? To that point, no one was saved. They had the hope of the Messiah coming, didn't they? They had the hope of salvation in and through the Messiah. Imagine what that would be like to be the disciples sitting there and see this all to come to pass. They had spent time with Jesus. They'd been with Jesus. They had learned from Jesus. But we know from the scripture that we looked at before, when they received the helper, he's going to what? Bring remembrance to them of everything that Jesus had said. So all of it was going to come together for them by this receiving of the Holy Spirit in them. Up until that point, they were just in a place of having the hope of salvation in the Messiah. Now... Truly, by the way we see it, because of the way it's worked out in our lives, they are saved. They're guaranteed, right? They are now sealed. 
So when Jesus paid the price, he completed the work. He was sacrificed for their sins and for ours. That's at the point that we could actually be, be truly be forgiven of our sins, right? But now he's going back to the Father. But he's not going to leave them alone. He's going to give to them the helper, the person of the Holy Spirit living in them. Verse 22. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. There's a couple things there that I think we should make note of. There's a breathing and there's a receiving, isn't there? The Greek word for breathed on them, that phrase is actually defined as breathing into them. Very important for us to realize that. It's a breathing into, bringing breath into. What do we do when someone's had a heart attack and we give them mouth to mouth? We're getting air back into their lungs, aren't we? We're breathing into them. It wouldn't do a whole lot of good to stand over here and go, you know, that's not going to do them any good at all, is it? We've got to breathe into them to bring life back. And in this case, to bring life, period, into the life of the disciples, into us, the Holy Spirit has to come in them. He breathed into them and said what? Receive the Holy Spirit. Receive the Helper. This me breathing into you is the fruition of what I promised I was going to do, giving to you, in you, the Holy Spirit. To live in them, to reside in them, to abide in them, to bring them peace, to bring them comfort. And as we see in verse 21 of our text in John 20, he says, as the Father has sent me, I also send you. Now, this is happening at the same time of what? Of them receiving the Holy Spirit. So, obviously, by deduction, by looking at it, you would think, oh, maybe there's a connection there between him sending and them receiving, right? I'm sending you out, and you need my Holy Spirit in you to change you from the inside out. When we get into the book of Acts, the first chapter, we'll be looking more at the upon you. It's got great significance as well, but the in you is something that, it's the everyday thing, isn't it? We need him in us every day so that we can effectively tell others about the change in us, so they can see for themselves the change that's in us. He does this work in us because of his love for us. Holy Spirit living in us. I challenge you this week to just think about that. To think about yielding to the Holy Spirit in that you wake up in the morning, maybe you make the commitment to say, I'm going to let the Holy Spirit run my whole day. Some of you might be thinking, ruin your whole day. There is just, you know, one letter difference there, ruin and run run my whole day and that everything that I do I'm going to check with the Holy Spirit before I say something, I act on something, whatever and you might be thinking well that, that could take time you know sometimes I, I'm one of those that's just got to make snap decisions you know I'm in a, a high corporate position and I got to bam 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 I got to do these things like John you know <laughs> Couldn't resist, John. Sorry. 
letting the Holy Spirit guide us in every one of those decisions and those directions. You've heard me mention it before. Uh, some years ago, there was an author, I don't remember his first name, last name was Sheldon, but uh, he wrote this book, In His Steps. How many of you have read that book? Great book. It's really cool because the challenge in that book is to ask the question that years later the bracelets come out, right? <laughs> what would Jesus do? Before we do anything, before we take any action, before we say anything, in the course of our day, we check in and we say, what would Jesus do? Now, think about this for a second. Stay with me on this. If we were to do that, if we were to ask, and we have the Holy Spirit living in us, and the Holy Spirit is there to help us to be obedient to what God would want us to do anyway, and we ask him, what would you have me do in this situation? Can you think of any time that the Holy Spirit's just going to go, nah, you're on your own. Figure it out for yourself. Man, you, didn't, you haven't checked with me for a week. Why don't you try it on your own? You know, he's not going to do that. He is there as our helper, right? So it would only make sense if God gave us his helper to help us to be obedient, to move in the way that he would want us to move, that if we asked, we would receive, wouldn't we? We would get direction. Now, will that direction be immediate? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, probably there's a direct connection between him speaking and us hearing that comes into play as well, right? But he is available there for us to do that very work, living in us to help us in our walk with the Lord. We've said it before here that the Holy Spirit is probably the most underutilized resource we have in our Christian walk and that we just don't rely on the Holy Spirit enough in the way that we should. And if we did, we would begin to see him working in our lives in a way that we maybe not have seen before. Think about that. That's, that should be exciting to us. Wow, an adventure, <laughs> trusting in the Lord, walking in His Holy Spirit, being obedient to that. That could be really cool, or it could be really scary, or that just frightens me to no end right now where I'm sitting, because He may ask me to do something I really don't want to do. Probably. He probably will. He may send you to China, smuggle Bibles. He might. Right, Mike? He might. He might very well do that. He might send you to Montana on a mission trip to minister to uh, the uh, uh, people on the reservation up there. He might send you to your neighbor's house that's a Mormon to share Jesus Christ with him. There's no telling what he's going to do. That's what's so exciting about it. Lord, here I am. Send me. Oh. Just don't send me over there or over there or make me do that or make me do this, right? That's typically where we are, but yielding ourselves to the Holy Spirit to be used by him in whatever way that he wants to. Why? Where's our focus? The love of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died for us. He initiated that love relationship in our lives. He initiated the work in our lives by giving us his Holy Spirit to help us if we would just believe. Amen?